Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's been a while since I've had this uh, opportunity, and, and uh, some of you I've been able to connect with uh, over the last number of months, but many of you I haven't seen for four months, uh, coming back off a four-month sabbatical leave. It's really good to be here. I uh, appreciate the welcome, and uh, uh, the Lord has been very good to, to us. And what we have been following uh, things uh, online, it's great that way, you know, to be able to at least at least keep up with what's happening, and we were able to watch the services uh, each week, whether whether live or uh, whatever they call that. <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, so, so yeah, it's good. It's good to be here. A lot going on, and I want to be mindful of the time this morning. Uh, I'm hoping to stick around for the cafe uh, time afterwards, and so I hope I get to visit with you, some of you then, or we do. Um, but right now, we, you've been sitting for a while, so uh, would you like to stand and just uh, join your heart in prayer with me this morning, just one more time before we uh, dig further into, into the Word of God together? Lord, I thank you for this uh, day and this great uh, group of people here for each one and for all that you are doing in our lives. We thank you for the songs we've been able to sing and, and uh, for Sean's thoughts as he's led us through the, the, your table and, and for um, all of the things that we're looking forward to in the remainder of this day and the days to come as there's just so much, uh, so much activity and, uh, and we just feel so blessed, so blessed by all of this. And, uh, but Lord, as we, uh, as we dig into your word in uh, Psalm 127, we pray you would lead us and guide us. Lord, we, we just just want to receive from you what you have for us this day because we, we know, Lord, that you have what we need and uh, you have all we need and that our needs are fully met and more in you as you give with your abundant grace into our lives. Please bless your word to our hearts and may your spirit lead our thoughts as we discern your will and your ways this day together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Don't make yourself too comfortable. Nice place you have here. <laughs> Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. I have on uh, numerous occasions uh, sought to uh, point out from Scripture that when the word house is used in Scripture, it often means much more and something uh, different than a physical structure. Um, 
It's used, uh, technically speaking, uh, it's used as a, a metonym, which is kind of like a metaphor, only not. Uh, a metonym is a word of an object, a name of an object that over time becomes uh, uh, re representative of something that's related to the object, but something different. In this case, the word house is very often used in scripture to refer to uh, family. The most obvious example of that is in the life of Jesus when we're told that Jesus was of the house of David. Uh, but that's not the only uh, example, of course. Um, but it's one of, one of the, maybe the more well-known ones. Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter 7, when David is thinking in his heart, I want to build a house for the Lord. And the prophet Nathan comes in and he says, the Lord is pleased. Hi, guys. <laughs> the Lord is pleased with what you're thinking. I'm paraphrasing here. But the Lord is pleased with what you're, you're thinking. But let me, let me say this to you. You're saying you're going to build me a house? Let me tell you this. I'm going to build you a house. And of course, as you read on in that passage, you know that God was not talking about bricks and mortar. He was talking about uh, the family of David. And, uh, and, and I didn't start with David. Uh, how many of you know this passage from the book of Joshua? Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Not talking about bricks and mortar, right? So, uh, so that's, uh, that's important. Uh, by the way, uh, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You're a parent here today. Uh, I hope you know that you have the moral uh, right and responsibility to set the direction for your family. The family's not a democracy, as it is often presented in our world today. I just mentioned that. Um, but... Um, you're probably familiar with the, the story of, uh, that Jesus tells at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, uh, on the Mount when he says, a wise man builds his house upon the rock. Do you think there that Jesus was talking about a physical structure? Or do you think he might have been talking about uh, our lives? Because, uh, because life is relationship. Do you, do you understand that? Life is relationship. And... Uh, I think it's, it's, it's rather obvious in that, in that uh, context. Do we think for one moment that God cares much at all about bricks and mortar? But he cares for you and me more than uh, we can imagine. Another, another statement of Scripture, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 1, says that the wise woman builds her house, but with her own hands, the foolish one tears her house down. Now, that would be preposterous to think of that in terms of a physical structure. But when you understand that it's talking about family and relationships, then we could recognize that we've seen it happen many times, unfortunately. I make this point again this morning so that when we begin to, uh, to uh, try to understand Psalm 127, uh, we can understand the, the intent behind it as the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Uh, it's, it's about family. It's about relationships. It's about life. Furthermore, the word translated build in verse 1 
uh, is the normal word used throughout the, con- throughout the scriptures for construction in terms of houses, cities, towers, altars, etc., etc. But it is also used, and I'm quoting from the theological word book of the Old Testament, it is also used idiomatically, as, as is an idiom, uh, to bring about increase in offspring. Genesis 16, verse 2 uses it this way. So the word build, the Hebrew word build, is used of things like houses and towers, etc., but it's also used as an idiom uh, to indicate the increase of, of uh, family or offspring. Uh, God is the architect of life, and uh, God is the author of life. Peter uh, makes that statement in Acts chapter 3. God is the author of life. Jesus Christ is the author of life. So whether you think of your life as a project under construction or whether you think of your life as a story to be told or a journey to be taken, whatever the metaphor is you might want to use, the question is always the same. Is God the architect of your life? Is God the author of your story? Is God the one who shepherds you or guides you uh, on the path of life? How you answer that question honestly will make all the difference in the world. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The Hebrews, when they wrote poetry, they used what's called uh, Hebrew parallel, poetic parallelism. It was a, it's a literary device that was extremely common. When you read through the Psalms, you'll see it over and over and over again, where the author will say the same, say something, and then he'll repeat it using different words, very, very similar, but also uh, filling out the meaning. So in the first part of verse 1, unless the Lord builds a house, in verse 2, unless uh, the Lord watches over the city. So... The word house there is referenced to much more than just bricks and mortar. And I would say to you, so is the word city. Bricks and mortar don't really make cities. People do. Life is relationship. When we are told in Scripture that Jesus wept over Jerusalem... Do we think he was weeping about all those great magnificent stones that he had just told his disciples would not be left, not one upon another? Do you think that that's what he was grieving over, or do you think maybe he was something else? Of course it was something else. Uh, last week, Josh mentioned that it's, uh, he was talking uh, in, the, in the message time about uh, the importance of God's presence in our lives. He was finishing up the series on conversations with God and talking about the importance of realizing God's presence when we pray and understanding uh, that God isn't just up there somewhere. He promises, like Sean mentioned this morning, he promises, you know, come to me. He is with us. And, uh, And that God's presence is ultimately the most important thing in the world. 
to experience. Um, I've sometimes suggested a little a exercise that people can do, and I I'd like for us to do it right now, actually. It's an, it's an imagination exercise. Are you ready? So I want you to imagine with me that some strange virus <laughs> has mysteriously attacked the population of the planet and through some freaky biological coincidence, it has wiped out every single person on the planet except for you. You are literally the only human being on planet Earth. Suddenly you realize that all of the stuff is there. All the beaches and swimming pools and resorts, they're all there. All the uh, trains, planes, automobiles, and yachts, anything and everything you could ever want in your life is all there. But you have absolutely no one to share any of it with because you are suddenly, utterly alone. What is that feeling? If you've been allowing your imagination to do its work, what is that feeling that you're feeling right now? It's hard to put it into words, but you could, uh, you could say it's hell. It's horrible, isn't it? And why would I ask you to do that? Like, it sounds kind of uh, sadistic to ask you to do that. But there's a point to it. The point is, is that just like Psalm 127, it's not about bricks and mortar. It's not about anything. It's about people. It's about persons. First off, it's about our relationship with God who made us in his image. And then secondly, it's about those who are like us, made persons in the image of God. You can have everything else. But if you don't have those things, you have nothing. The word trans Hebrew word vain that occurs three times here in verse one and two means emptiness or nothingness. John chapter one, verse three says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse four says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The Lord provides, the Lord preserves, the Lord creates, the Lord conserves, the Lord garners, and the Lord guards. Unless the Lord builds a house, unless the Lord guards the city, it's all in vain. Verse 2 says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon, who is attributed, this poem is attributed to, if you noted that, 
Throughout the book of Proverbs, uh, Solomon promotes the virtues of rising early and working hard. So I'm quite certain that here he's not intending to poo-poo those of you who get up early and work hard. Or even occasionally stay up late because you have a lot to do. But here in this psalm is a picture of the kind of anxiety and frantic effort of a life that is void of trust in God. You can do all these things as long as you're conscious of the fact that ultimately, if God doesn't work, if God doesn't guard our lives, then it's all in vain. Anxiety. The times that you and I are living in are, are the most interesting of times. Uh, I've seen more change in the last three years of my life than I did in the other 60. And that, that's not a hyperbole. That's reality. In 2016, that's uh, prior to the whole COVID virus, uh, research determined that over 6 million teens in the U.S. had been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. That's 25% of the adolescent population of the United States of America. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, from 2006 to 2015, so basic 10-year period, the number of adolescents that had at least one major depressive episode went from 4.6% to 12.5%. One of the researchers involved in that study uh, said that self-harm appears to be the signature symptom of the anxiety and depression that was manifested in this generation. Self-harm. Uh, and when you think about it, you know, uh, cutting is a very dramatic uh, symptom of despair, isn't it? It's not new. If you read the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18, you'll see that cutting is not new. But the levels of despair and anxiety in our culture is 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 outstanding. It's, it's unprecedented. According to a new, uh, a new uh, study done by the Centers for Diseases Control and Prevention, uh, from 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 44%. That's almost half of the population of the adolescents in the U.S. And it's the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. These aren't just statistics. It's heartbreaking. And although the Hebrew word shalom doesn't appear in our passage or our text, I'm quite certain that peace was on the mind of the writer when he says in the last part of that, that verse there, for he gives his beloved sleep. It is in vain that you rise up early and go uh, late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, 
For he, who's he? Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord guards the city. It comes from God. And if you don't have God in your life, you're going to have anxiety. Now, that's not to say that Christians never get anxious. Because as Sean pointed out, we don't always you know, enter into those green pastures the way that the Lord wants for us to. But, but there is a, a, a striking difference between having the Lord in your life and being able to look to him and trust in him to work in your life and to guard your life. The prophet Isaiah, he said it this way, he said, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Verses three through five, the last um, five, uh, three verses of Psalm 130, uh, 127, says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord and the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. He says, behold, and that's different than, than uh, look. Behold is more than look. Behold is see. Because you can do a lot of looking and not see much. There's a difference. He wants us to see. He wants us to comprehend. He wants us to be impacted by the truth of the statement that he's making. And the word children there uh, certainly includes our children in the literal sense of the term. But considering what we've already said about the words house and the word city, we need to be willing to realize, recognize that uh, the author here uh, has uh, a much larger intent when he speaks of, of our children. What do I mean by that? Well, let, let's think some time to just think about this a little bit. This afternoon, as Alex mentioned, we're having a... Uh, a, a, a youth and Children's Workers Rally here in the auditorium. And uh, um, whenever we do stuff like this, it, it, uh, you know, it's intended for uh, workers and, and leaders in our, in our programming. Uh, but it's also, as you, I hope you heard him I indicate, that if you are interested in, in young people, uh, if you care, if, whether, you know, because what happens is sometimes we, we, we make announcements like this or we set out on, uh, set out on, on, on the, these, uh, these, act, these activities, these ministries, and people, and, and inevitably there are some who say these things don't apply to me because I don't have children or I don't have young children. Therefore, they don't apply to me. This isn't about me. This really, I, I, it's not relevant for me. And on these, that, uh, I want to say just three things I want to point out to you. Number one, I want to remind you that uh, as Josh Carter kind of intimated there this morning when he was talking about the saints, that every Christian is identified in Scripture as a child of God. And then I want to point out that uh, Paul says that by faith, you and I become children of Abraham. Furthermore, you probably are aware that Jesus did not have was not married, did not get married, and did not have biological children. You do know that, right? And yet, listen to what Scripture says. I'm reading, and this is not going on the screen, but, but I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 2. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, 
in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those, that's the word for saint, sanctified one, holy ones, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, which is what Psalm 127 is all about. And again, behold, I and the children you have given me. That last statement comes from the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah the prophet is referring to himself and his children. But of course, Isaiah is a type of of Christ. So a literal interpretation of Scripture doesn't mean that we ignore uh, the idioms and metaphors and the figurative language of Scripture being for what it is. And what I'm suggesting to you is that when uh, we see the word children there, we tend to just think it means our biological children. And I'm suggesting to you it means much, much more than that. Um, because you might, you might not have children, you, biological children, or you might not have young children, but I can tell you this for sure. If you are part of this church family, you have children. In fact, you have a lot of them. And you also have brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. Um, there, there are lots of passages that I could reference on this point. I'll just share one with you. First John 2.12, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Call ourselves a family of families, right? Why do we do that? This is why. The biblical teaching of adoption might help us uh, appreciate the, the, the bigger meaning here, but there is a word, there's a term, it's a new word, it's not an old word, uh, there's a term that captures the, the sense of what we're talking about here. It's the word generativity. You might not be familiar with it, perhaps you are, but uh, Wikipedia says the term generativity was coined by the psychoanalyst Eric Erickson in 1950 to denote, and this is the definition given to the word generativity, a um, concern for establishing and guiding the next generation. Now, there's another important point that rises out of the text here, and I just want to... uh, to bring it, bring it forward if I can at this time. And that is that when we usually, when we think about children, we think about what we need to do for them, right? When you're anticipating having children, you know, your, your mind is, you know, the, all the prep stuff, you know, you, you go through, most people, not everybody. But, uh, you know, to be prepared and because, you know, you're bringing a child into the world and they, they can do like nothing, themselves. You've got to do everything. When you bring, you know, you know, if you've been there at all, you bring that little baby home uh, and like you've got to do it all right for them. And so that's, that's typically, and, and kids, kids can be a handful. Joel, your kids are a handful. The text says uh, happy is he who has his quiver full. Uh, I think it's Derek Kidner in his commentary says that usually they end up being more a handful than a, ki- than a quiver full. But kids can be a handful. There's a lot. You know, you, you got to be prepared. You better be prepared to do a lot of giving, right? 
But the passage, the text here doesn't focus on what we have to, what we do for kids. It focuses on what kids do for us. What do kids do for us? Or even to expand on that, what do other people do for us? What do, what do, what do, um, <laughs> well, here's one thing that they do. They, <laughs> I'm not, that wasn't meant to be rhetorical um, or sarcastic at all. They deliver us, listen, they deliver us or help to deliver us from being all wrapped up in ourselves being self-centered and consumed by self-interest. Children teach us, not by their own initiative so much as just by their very existence in our lives. They teach us uh, to care about others, to invest ourselves in the well-being and interests of others. And that's life-giving. That's life-giving. I don't know if you've heard it. I've heard it many times. I've heard parents say this. I didn't know I could love someone that much. Um, Listen to these words now from Jesus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains. Do you remember what the next word is? John chapter 12. Unless the seed falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And of course, Jesus was speaking ultimately about his own life and sacrifice that he would make, but he's also stating a kingdom principle. And that principle is attested to throughout scripture. And even in the very context, we see the next words out of Jesus' mouth are these. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So potentially, having children or having other people in your life that you are sacrificing for, laying down your life for, giving out of yourself for, is life-giving. You would think it would be the opposite. But in God's economy, when you give, you actually receive more than you give. And Scripture tells us that. Giving and giving of oneself is a kingdom principle that's counterintuitive, but a vital aspect of God's economy. And there is this superb paradox that when we give, we receive more than we give. When we think of children, we tend to think of what we're going to have to do for them, when the reality is they will do more for us than we could ever do for them when you think of others, you tend to think of their expectations of you. What can I get from you? That's a pretty cynical way to live, isn't it? 
Again, this is not to be uh, limited to our biological offspring uh, or our children in the literal sense. And that's why we have uh, many leaders and workers in our children's program and youth programs that don't have children in those programs. It's not just parents who have a role to play. Um, I mentioned that team meeting we're having this afternoon for vision casting and, and stuff like that. And uh, uh, because, because we as a church family uh, value uh, our, our, our young people, our children, our youth. Um, and this rally is not just happening um, for leaders and workers. Anyone and everyone who can, who can s- s- uh, see that they have a role to play. You have a role to play, whether it's encouraging or mentoring or whether it's caring and praying. You have a role to play in the lives of the people around you, especially younger people. And inevitably, again, when we talk about these things, uh, we have people that, in, that think and sometimes say, well, what about, uh, what about us? What about, what about us old people? Now, as being an old person now, I think I can probably comment on that because I'm officially old, they tell me. <laughs> Thank you, Carlotta. I'm glad you got your voice back. Let me, uh, let me see if I can say this succinctly. If you consider yourself old or older and you have not yet learned what Jesus was talking about in John 12 about the seed falling to the ground and abiding alone and the wonderful wideness and richness of what Psalm 27 is wanting to reveal to us, then I pity you. And I invite you to give your heart away. Because you have an extremely important role to play. Um, We're close to the end. But I want to uh, just mention a couple things. It says there at the very very last uh, about uh, the reference to our enemies. And obviously... That can be taken literally. But in light of everything we've been talking about, I don't think it's just meant just to speak to, you know, the people that we might might be tempted to consider as our enemies. It, it probably should include our ultimate enemy, which is the devil. But I think it, it's broad enough, really, uh, in the intent, it's broad enough to include any anything that opposes us, anything that stands in in between us and God's will for our lives. So a casual reading of the Psalm 127 uh, might cause us to think the author is, you know, shifting the subject matter from the first half to the second half of the psalm. Some people have even suggested that this, this is two different psalms that somebody's put together. I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think that uh, there are a number of factors, some of which we, I've mentioned to you about the wording that should cause us to realize that, no, he's talking about really about one thing here. He's talking about life, which is relationship. And um, there, there, I mentioned, you know, the, the house and city and some of those things, how they're used as, 
as uh, idioms. Um, the Hebrew words for, and you understand that the Old Testament was written predominantly in Hebrew, some Aramaic, but most of the Hebrew, the Psalms were all in Hebrew. The Hebrew words for sons or for son and, and, and daughter and house all sound very similar in Hebrew. This is a poem, remember. And the reason they sound similar is because all three, the word Hebrew word for son, the Hebrew word for daughters, and the Hebrew word for house, all have the same root word. And that root word is in the passage too. It's the word build. I believe it's uh, pronounced uh, barna, uh, bar something like that. Um, but whatever, however it's pronounced, uh, it's interesting that the psalmist is driving here towards something for us to understand. And he says those words that I, f I find so uh, profoundly challenging to my heart unless the Lord builds the house. Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord guard the city, they watch in vain. I hope you know that God is the ultimate builder. He's the people builder. Um, I'm just trying to finish up with a couple thoughts here. Genesis chapter 2 where it says that God took the rib from Adam and made a woman. That's the word. Same word build as is here in uh, Psalm 127. I hope we can appreciate what the author is talking about here because um, we live in a world where the majority of people seem to have a little sense of God in their lives. I'm thankful this week for the testimony of the queen that's been encouraging to hear uh, many, many of the things that she has said about, about her personal uh, faith in Christ. That's been encouraging. But most people in our day seem to think of themselves as the author of their own story, the builder of their own lives, the shepherd of their own souls. They just follow their own hearts. But I want to ask you this morning, who is the architect of your life? To say that the Lord is doesn't, doesn't take the place of effort and hard work. But I want to quote Wes McAdams. He says, you can wear yourself out with your career, your kids, or anything else. But if the Lord isn't at the center of everything you do, it will all be for nothing. That's a sobering statement, isn't it? And acknowledging the, the, the Lord and his work in our lives and trusting in him for his grace doesn't remove the place of human effort and decision-making. doesn't mean those things become unimportant. But what it does do, I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
And, uh, oh, I have gone over. Surprise, surprise. Um, so here's my last thought for you this morning, and I, I promise this is my, my last thought. Um, oftentimes when we go to the Word or listen to a sermon, we're, we want to come away with uh, something, some type of formula. Give me, give me the steps, the things, tell me what I need to do so I can go do it so I'll have success in, in my life. And the reason we tend to think that way is because we, are, uh, we tend to be very pragma- pragmatic. We, we suffer from pragmatism. Uh, and the reason that we suffer from pragmatism, pragmatism is because we are naturally inclined to think that life depends on what we do. But what is the message of this psalm? Make sure the Lord is the architect of your life, the author of your story, the shepherd of your soul. Because unless you do, in the end, nothing else is going to matter because it will all be in vain. The problem with pragmatism is that it misses the blessed reality that life is not something we earn, but it is a gift that is given. It's not as much about what we do. Listen, it's not as much about what we do as it is about what God is prepared to do in and through us by his grace. So I end with the question again, do you have the Lord in your life? Will you stand with me? For prayer, do you have the Lord in your life? And maybe, maybe you're here and you're saying, well, how do I do that? How do I get the Lord into my life? Well, we have talked some about that already today, but it is pretty simple because the invitation is a standing invitation that he makes to us. He's already done everything to provide for the forgiveness of our sins and, and, and provide us for access into his presence and into a relationship with him. But he calls on us as the gentleman that he is, that Sean, as Sean mentioned, to respond. And so to get God into your life, you respond to his gracious invitation. You just got to walk through the door, through the gate. And then once you walk through that gate, um, you just need to keep trusting him. Paul says, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk ye in him. We live the Christian life the same way we become Christians. It's through trust in the one who made us, the one who gave his life for us. So will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this tremendous group of people here again this morning. And we have a lot happening in these days. And there's just a lot going on, a lot of activities. And I know activities are good. But help us, Lord, to see that activities in and of themselves do not constitute life that our relationship with you is life and our relationship with one another is an extension of that life that you give. Help us, Lord, to practice real generativity. And Lord, may our eyes be on you and may we see, may we behold the glory of the Lord 
in our lives. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.